Well, as you know from the invitation, this is the fifth annual lecture in the Hazel and Fulton Chauncey Lecture Series. Hazel and Fulton Chauncey were longtime VHS members who had a special interest in the scholarly work of this institution. Their sons, Edwin Hall and Warren Fulton Chauncey, established this lecture series as a way to encourage that same appreciation for history and history education in others, particularly in young people. Warren Chauncey brought the idea to us five years ago for this lecture series, and we immediately jumped on it because we thought his requirement was eminently reasonable. He said, well, it just needs to be about the Civil War or Southern history or Virginia history. Do you think you can find topics to cover that? <laughs> we said, I think we can. I think that's a broad enough mandate. We can do that. And we've been doing that, as I said, for the last five years. Now, unfortunately, Edwin Hall Chauncey passed away in February of 2011 as the first lecture was approaching. But I'm pleased that his brother Warren is with us tonight, as he has been each year. And I'd like Warren to stand up and be recognized for his role in bringing this lecture series together. And now for this evening's program. With a single shot from a pistol small enough to conceal in his hand, John Wilkes Booth catapulted into history on the night of April 14th, 1865. The assassination of President Abraham Lincoln stunned a nation that was just emerging from the chaos and calamity of the Civil War, and the President's untimely death certainly altered the trajectory of post-war history. But to those who knew Booth, the event was even more shocking, for no one could have imagined that this fantastically gifted actor and well-liked man could commit such a crime. In Fortune's Fool, Tonight's speaker provides the first comprehensive look at the life of an enigmatic figure whose life has been overshadowed by his final infamous act. Terry Alford is a professor of history at Northern Virginia Community College and a longtime friend of the VHS. He gave a banner lecture on John Wilkes Booth way back in 1992. So he's obviously been living with Mr. Booth for quite some time. He's also the author of Prince Among Slaves, the true story of an African prince sold into slavery in the American South, which was made into a PBS documentary in 2007. His latest book and the subject of this evening, evening's lecture is Fortune's Fool, the life of John Wilkes Booth. According to one reviewer, the biography offers a vivid, gripping portrait of the charming, impetuous, and troubled Booth, whose ill-fated, an ultimately murderous path often seems to strangely echo the doomed Shakespearean characters he played on stage. Another reviewer writes, based on meticulous and exhaustive research written in vivid prose, spiced with wry humor, Terry Alford's Fortune's Fool is a tour de force by a masterful historian. This eagerly awaited biography exceeds the high expectations so long entertained by Civil War buffs Lincolnians, that's Lincoln, I, I, I learned this word, I did not even know that was a word, Lincolnians, and lovers of American history in general. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Terry Alford, who will speak to us tonight on Fortune's Fool.
Thank you for that, for that great introduction. Every author needs a, a proper incentive to travel miles and, um, and go somewhere and give a speech. And I'm always reminded of the wonderful definition of incentive given by P.D. East. P.D. East was a uh, crusading journalist down in Mississippi in, the in Mississippi down in the 1950s. And he was very progressive on civil rights and always getting himself in trouble for his editorials. And he wrote one he knew it was going to cause some trouble one day, and people told him, you better watch out, right? That's an unpopular view in Mississippi in the 1950s. So when Mr. East went out uh, for lunch, got in his car, shut the door, locked it, cranked up. But before he pulled off, someone was pounding on the driver's side window, and Mr. East looked, and there was a very scary-looking individual saying, are you P.D. East, the troublemaking newspaper man? And with more courage than he felt, Mr. East said, yes, I am. The man said, if you get out of this car, I'll beat your brains out. <laughs> Mr. E said, if you want me to get out of this car, you've got to give me a lot more incentive than that. <laughs> uh, the regard I have for uh, the Virginia Historical Society, which, uh, where I spent many, many weeks working on this book, uh, for, for Nelson, for Graham, for the wonderful work here, that's all the incentive I needed to, uh, to come. And again, I thank you for the invitation. The, um, the Booth book grew from a, actually from a class I taught on great crimes. And in that class, we would take a different crime every week. We would psycho Vanzetti one week, the Lindbergh kidnapping the next week, a Haymarket riot the next week, then the Lincoln assassination. Hands down, the Lincoln assassination was the favorite. The students just uh, were most interested in it. I mean, the characters were, you know, great. The issues, very substantial. And uh, it was, of course, wonderfully set in Washington, D.C. So I began to think about a book on him, and I realized there were a lot of books on the assassination, but there weren't any books on Booth. And the reason I realized that might be a problem was uh, as one of Booth's co-conspirators said, he alone was the driving force in everything we did. So the assassination books, and some of them quite good, but in a way they're, they're looking in the trunk, they're polishing the windshield, you know, they're vacuuming uh, the inside of the car. You got to look at the engine if you really want to see what was driving that, that vehicle. So that was my, uh, my, one of my motivations in going forward. Now, this map, I'm going to highlight down here at the bottom, Baltimore. So this is Baltimore here. Uh, and this would be roughly uh, going up to the... Uh, upper right-hand corner would be I-95. So this is, say, when you're going from Baltimore up toward Philadelphia, up toward Wilmington on 95. Uh, and this was Booth's home neighborhood. And in fact, he was born just outside this little place here, Bel Air, Maryland. This is Harford County. And there's a little place named Churchville. And he was born just outside uh, that village in this house. Now, this house is no longer standing. Uh, it was gone uh, by the late uh, 1900s, by the late 1800s. But Booth was born in this log house. Now, the, you'll notice, if you can see it, there's a family in the front yard. These are not the Booths. This photo was taken in 1865 after Booth made the neighborhood infamous. Uh, a photographer came out. There was a neighborhood family who was renting the place. And so they just kind of came out and stood uh, in the front yard. This house is still standing. It's just a few feet from the log house. Uh, this is the house where Booth was a teenager. Uh, it's named Tudor Hall. 
for uh, being kind of a, a large Tudor college. It was cottage. It was built in the early 1850s, about 10 years before the war. Again, the neighborhood family is posing on the front porch there. But this house is still here. This house is owned by Harford County, Maryland, after a series of uh, private owners for years and years and years. Um, in fact, when I first came on the scene, it was still privately owned by a wonderful old couple named Dorothy and Howard Fox. And they knew I was interested in booths, so they just totally threw the front door open. And you never knew what you were going to get when you came. Sometimes Howard would give you a beer. Sometimes he would give you a paintbrush. I mean, you never knew what was going to happen, but uh, they were always very hospitable. And I remember um, Howard said one time, I know you're really interested in Booth. Um, you want to spend the night in Booth's bedroom? I said, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, you know, I don't want him asking me, you know, why are you asking all these questions about me all over the United States? So Howard said, you don't believe in ghosts, do you? And I said, no, and I don't intend to change my mind either. Okay. <laughs> Now, Booth also spent some time in this uh, central townhouse. This is in Baltimore. If any of you know Baltimore, we have the uh, Inner Harbor in Baltimore. And then there's a residential neighborhood just a little bit to the east. This house is gone too, but that was the Booth uh, Baltimore City townhome. And uh, when he was young, Booth would perform amateur theatricals in the backyard there with his, with his brothers. This is John Wilkes Booth's father. Uh, Junius Brutus Booth. Uh, he and his wife came to the United States in 1821. So you can see the Booth family had been to the country about 40 years when the Civil War took place. They came in 41. He was an actor. And in the uh, generation just before Lincoln, say the generation of Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill, you know, uh, his dad was one of the, and, and at times, the best actor in the United States, uh, making a pretty good salary, well-known. Uh, a really good actor when he was focused and interested, but at other times he uh, might not show up for a performance. He, he might insult the audience, he might dress inappropriately uh, or threaten his fellow actors. You just never knew. It was different from day to day to day. And of course, he was a very challenging parent uh, because you, you, know, you, you weren't getting consistency out of him. Uh, he could be loving and charming, then next week he could scare the hell out of you. Um, and one of the things he did uh, to punish children, and I think we all know, we've all been on the receiving end of something like this, uh, he would simply clam up and shun you. He would just simply go totally quiet, like you weren't even in the room. Uh, he also had those actor eyes that could bore a hole into you and could be very intimidating to a child. Um, but happily, John's mother, uh, shown here in a painting by Thomas Sully, this is Mary Ann Holmes, who was John's mother. She was uh, open, engaging, loving, unjudgmental, uh, just a very healthy, wholesome counterweight uh, to, to the erratic father. Now, they would have 10 children. Uh, four of them died, though, before uh, making it out of childhood. So uh, when she grew into uh, older age, she had uh, essentially she had uh, four boys and two uh, girls. One of the four boys, of course, being John Wilkes Booth. The oldest of the boys, who looks a little bit like the father in uh, my uh, eye, was Junius Brutus Booth Jr. He was an actor during the Civil War period. This is John Wilkes Booth's oldest brother. Uh, he had neither the taint nor the talent of uh, his father or of his younger brothers, but made a competent living on stage. When, when I put up the slides of Booth's family and put the brothers up there, I'm reminded of the story about a minister who preached a funeral sermon 
And then when he got through, he asked the congregation, would any, would any of you here like to say anything? There was a pause, and somebody in the congregation said, his brother was even worse. <laughs> I don't think we're going to hear that about Junius, not with a brother like John Wilkes. A more famous uh, older brother, this is Edwin Booth, who was a very fine actor in the late 19th century. I can always tell how old Edwin is in photographs by his haircuts. Uh, this is the 1861-62 haircut. Uh, it's funny how you, you can use that as well as the clothes and other things, but the haircuts are real cues about how Edwin is doing. This is um, John's older sister, Asia. Um, she was not a public uh, figure, of course, like her brothers were, but uh, she was a pretty good writer, a pretty good poet, and she wrote a secret memoir of her brother John. She wrote it about 10 years after the Lincoln murder. She had to hide it from her husband, who I'm going to show right here. This is her husband, John Sleeper Clark. She had to hide it from Clark because he had grown un hostile to the family and a very unpleasant person to be around, sort of blamed the Booth family, and especially John Wilkes Wright for all the problems he was having in his life. Uh, so um, uh, she had to hide it. And then before she died, since she died before John Sleeper Clark did, she gave it out of the family to make sure that he didn't find and destroy the memoir. I uh, published the memoir separately in a small volume uh, some, some years ago, and it's the longest. This is, uh, again, the memoir written by Asia. This is the longest, most extensive account of John Wilkes Booth we have by any family member. John didn't like Clark very much, and once during the middle of the war years, he assaulted him during a political discussion. Uh, they were talking about this, that, and the other. The war came up. Clark began to tear into the South. Uh, John drummed his fingers kind of sullenly and patiently, and then when Clark started adding personal insults about Jefferson Davis, somebody there said John just leapt onto Clark and tried to pull that big head right off his shoulders. And John Wilkes Booth was incredibly strong, and it was some difficulty, right, that they were able to get Booth off this guy. This is uh, the youngest of the Booth children. This is a brother named uh, Joseph Booth. It's interesting to think about Joe here because this is the one everybody was concerned about. When you look at family letters written during the Civil War, they never say anything about uh, John's getting weird or anything like that. They always say, we got a little trouble in the family, but the trouble was always Joe. This is the brother that they were worried about, uh, doing something strange, uh, maybe to himself, maybe to others. At some point during the Civil War, he left the United States and went to Australia, lived on a, um, a sheep ranch, Finally came back to San Francisco, took job li delivering letters for Wells Fargo. Uh, and that was where he was through most of the American Civil War. I never met Ella Mahoney, who owned the Booth House. She was uh, way back before me. She came to Tudor Hall, the Booth home, you remember, uh, as a bride of 20 in 1878. And uh, she lived there for almost the next 70 years. This was Tudor Hall as it looked in the mid-1930s during the Depression period. Uh, and she says, frankly, that she didn't know anything about Tudor Hall when she came there because uh, she was from the neighborhood, but, you know, the Booths had left. Her husband bought the house from the Booths, but uh, she lived there a, a farm life, a farm wife. But, you know, people would come by. They would say, this is the Booth house. Can I come in, look around? You know, well, when I was a kid, we used to play on that cherry tree right there. I mean, she would, uh, you know, just meet people, talk to people. She began to collect stories, write things down. Uh, just like the foxes, she was very generous and threw open the door to the place. And 
One day in the 1930s, again, this is during the Depression, this fellow came down the road. This was Stanley Kimmel. Uh, Kimmel was um, uh, uh, kind of a soldier of fortune, uh, footloose traveler, journalist, poet, um, musician. And he came to visit the house because he had in mind doing a book on the Booth family. Now, I'm not sure, I haven't decided yet, whether Kimmel wasn't totally honest with Mrs. Mahoney about what he intended to do, or maybe, you know, she's too elderly at that point to pick up the signs that he was interested in doing a Booth book because she had always wanted to do one. Um, this is Kimmel's notebook, uh, research notebook from 1934 as he began to travel around and interview people. Mrs. Mahoney drove in places. He stayed at Tudor Hall. He ate the uh, meals that she prepared. And she was just shocked beyond shocked when he published a book. Uh, she always thought that uh, she would do it or they would do it together. But when his Mad Boost of Maryland came out, she was very disturbed. And in fact, she particularly disliked the adjective mad. Uh, she had grown to love the Booths after living in their house for 70 years. She thought they were great people. And, uh, you know, once you know and love somebody, you start making excuses for them. And she was certainly making excuses for everybody, even John Wilkes by that time. So, you know, while Kimmel enjoyed his success, poor Mrs. Mahoney idled away, you know, her last few years with her little booth collection uh, at Tudor Hall. You could see family portraits and things and, and her caretaking the place. Well, one day, somebody happier for her came down the lane to Tudor Hall. It was a, a woman named Helen Covey. Helen was a young woman, maybe two generations younger than Mrs. Uh, Mahoney was. And she said, don't let that, that Kimmel's a rat, you know, don't let him discourage you. You know, you and I can write a book. Just tell me what you want, I'll write it down, I'll type it up. So they worked for years and years and years on, on, on a project. But then World War II came along, Helen got married, people moved away, the war. Mrs. Mahoney died right after the war. So when I came on the research scene years ago, everybody knew that Mrs. Mahoney and Helen had worked together on a book, but nobody knew what happened to Helen, nobody knew where the work was. So I just decided I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't even know if Helen's still alive. She would be in her 80s by that point, but I'm gonna find her if I can and see if she has anything. And every time, you know, I saw anybody with her last name or her married last name, you know, I would call them up, uh, you know, and I couldn't tell you how many times the phone was slammed down in my ear, right? You know, John Wilkes Booth, bam, you know, they don't wanna hear that, right? But it was some nut job. But I kept looking, kept looking, kept looking. And one day there she was. I'll be damned, I found her. There's Helen Covey many, many years later living um, uh, down south on a farm. She was delighted to see me. She hadn't had anybody to talk to about Booth and Mrs. Mahoney with for decades. And she was very gracious and very helpful, very welcoming. And she handed over to me the mother load. I mean, she just had piles of stuff that they had done. Some of it going back to the period, you know, right at the end of the Civil War. I might, I might just say, the mother load uh, of papers. Uh, I noticed one thing was, uh, this is something Mrs. Mahoney wrote at the top. Let me help you out. This says, the way up at the top, the way he went. This is Mrs. Mahoney's account of going along John Wilkes Booth's escape tour after he left Ford's Theater down through Prince George's and across uh, into Virginia, down below Fredericksburg. Uh, also in that pile, a letter from a descendant of John Ford of Ford's Theater and if you can see what the envelope says there, contents eight hairs from the head of John Wilkes Booth. How'd you like to pop open a letter and find that, uh, that thing stuck in there? The thing I really enjoyed was this. Um, this is the house that Booth built, the house that fell with Lincoln by Ella Mahoney. And down at the bottom, we see Helen's 
uh, almost there as a typist, but I really decided after working on this that she is co-author of this manuscript. So in, in my notes, and I made pretty good use of this in the early part of the book, I hope I, hope I did, uh, you'll see I credit her as co-author of the book. And it had all the stories that Mrs. Mahoney had heard over the years. People just dropped by. One time, for example, Woodrow Wilson dropped by. And she opened the door, there's Woodrow Wilson. Here, next day, there's H.L. Mencken. I mean, all sorts of famous people came by because of uh, Tudor Hall being the home to such great actors, as well as an infamous assassin. Uh, a lead in Mrs. Mahoney's book uh, led me to this document. Now, this is a Quaker wedding certificate. Some of you may know, right, that uh, historically, friends don't have paid clergy. So once there's a wedding, everybody there comes up and signs the wedding certificate. It's almost like, you know, you sign it as part of your promise to support this young couple, right, in, in their life and their love together, right? So everybody in the congregation signed, and once I was looking at, oops, sorry, once I was looking at this, go back a second, sorry. Down at the bottom here, right in this area, John W. Booth signed, and that made a little sense because up here is Eli Lamb, who ran a school that Booth attended. There's uh, John Emerson Lamb, another member of the family. So uh, Reverend Lamb just had some of the students from the school troop over and, and attend the wedding. And although Booth is only 12 years old, he's signing the certificate. The wedding incidentally took place, you know how the French churches are set up very simply right often with benches facing each other. And this is a gunpowder meeting uh, in near Sparks, Maryland. John Wilkes Booth went to an academy, Harford County Academy at Bel Air, Maryland. So I'll tell you just briefly about what type of education he had. He also attended uh, this school run by the Quakers. This is in Sparks, Maryland. It's now a very, very fine restaurant. And inside they've restored it and you can see uh, these are the floors uh, in the one of the dining rooms with the uh, old planks, nice yellow pine, square head nails. Uh, very nice look. We've all seen that right in historic homes. John also attended what was essentially a high school, uh, and that is St. Timothy's um, School in Catonsville, Maryland. This is what St. Timothy's looked like from the road, and it was run by uh, this Episcopalian minister, Lippertus von Bokelen, who was an intelligent man, but one I don't think who had very good understanding of boys. One of his uh, less successful ideas was to have classes before breakfast. And uh, the boys didn't care much for that. And as one of them said, no wonder the school is named for Tim Timothy. St. Timothy is the patron saint of people with stomach problems. Uh, that's exactly how they felt. And in fact, at one point, there was a revolt of the students uh, about a hundred of them went out, camped out in the woods and wouldn't come back to the school, so they had to bring parents in from Baltimore to broker an end to a three-day student rebellion. But uh, essentially what, what this is all about is John Wilkes Booth had no college. Uh, he got, I would say, on, on a modern scale about halfway through high school. A better education than his um, older brothers, but he didn't take to it as easily. He could learn but it was more of a struggle. His sister Asia said his brothers just kind of got things like that, that John had to plod. It was a little harder for him to learn things. Now, now we're in Richmond. Uh, Richmond actually has almost two chapters in my Booth book because I think next to Washington, it is the most important city to John Wilkes Booth. 
Washington, of course, where the murder take place, that's got to have center stage toward the back of the book. But in the early part, you know, um, in the years right before the war, John acted at the, at the Richmond Theater. And of course, a lot of us will know that at Ford's Theater, where he uh, assassinated Lincoln, the play that night was Our American Cousin. He played that for almost two weeks in the, in the Richmond Theater. But it wasn't known until I found it just before the book came out what role he actually played uh, in, in Our American Cousin. Uh, and this clipping, I'd, please don't bother reading it, but it does say up here that uh, in Richmond, let's see what it says. He was a very good light comedian in emotional parts, the best fop Richmond had seen, and he played Lord Dundreary uh, in Our American Cousin. So that was, of course, a, a play that he knew real, real well. I'll have more to say about that in just a second. Some of you recognize John Brown, maybe an unfriendly presentation of him is kind of a nut job. Uh, while Booth was at the Richmond Theater, uh, Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry took place October of 1859. Uh, here's a companion illustration showing Governor Henry Rise rallying uh, the citizens of Virginia to defend the Commonwealth. Uh, and Booth went with the Virginia militia to uh, Charlestown and was present when Brown was executed. One misunderstanding about this is he somehow had kind of pushed his way onto the train with soldiers. Actually, that is a, a complete misunderstanding because in the state archives, a friend and I found this document. This is a pay voucher where the Commonwealth is paying John Wilkes Booth $64.58 uh, for his time as a soldier with the Virginia militia at the Brown execution. So he's actually um, a sergeant, he was a corporal, uh, a, a sergeant rather, in, in, the, uh, in the Virginia militia at the time of the Brown execution. Now over here, I don't know if you could see it, notice the date uh, that the money was paid, April 14, 1859. So that's exactly six years before the assassination. This is the flag that uh, Booth's militia friends marched under and so did he, the flag of the Richmond Grace. Here's the canton of the flag of the Richmond Grays. Sic Semper Tyrannis. If that sounds familiar from Ford's theater, um, you know, it, it, it was obviously ingrained in Booth's head uh, because as I say, he marched under this banner at the John Brown execution. The trouble with the Sic Semper approach to things though is this. Look at this flag. This is a, an African-American unit from the north during the Civil War. We see six Semper Tyrannus at the top and an African-American soldier you know, putting a bayonet in a Confederate soldier. So that six Semper Tyrannus stuff can come back and bite you, I think. Now, um, this is a fellow that's escaped attention, I think, until my book came out. His name is Herman Stump. He was a lawyer from that part, rural part of Maryland where Booth grew up. Uh, he was a very, very pro-Confederate fellow. And he said Booth joined a militia company in Maryland as the Civil War was breaking out. What they were going to do, uh, look at the extent of this covered bridge, but they were going to um, destroy this bridge. You may or may not know that once the war began, Confederate Marylanders wanted to destroy the railroad bridges leading into Maryland, right, in an effort to cut Maryland off from the Yankee North. And this is one of the bridges over the Susquehanna River that uh, Maryland, Marylanders, Booth, Stump, and others were going to destroy. But Booth did not go into the Confederate Army, did he? Um, many of his friends in Maryland did. Stomp chose not to. Stomp chose to go into exile in Canada. Some just chose to stay in Maryland and malinger uh, 
during Lincoln's reun uh, reunion campaign, um, Booth reached a crisis point um, in the summer of 61 about what he wanted to do. The story is that, of course, he, his, his politics were actively Southern. The time he had spent in Richmond before the war had permanently submitted uh, his allegiance to this city and to its course uh, with the Confederacy. And he had many, many friends here. He was well received here. He loved this town. And he wanted to go into the Confederate Army. In fact, he had his bags packed. But John Ford at Ford's Theater said, his mother sat him down and said, look, I've already lost four children. She had also had an, a premonition. When he was six months old, she had a strong, strong premonition that he would die an early and violent death. She was sure something would happen to him. She was the son he loved the most. He was the most affectionate and attentive to her. And he had protected her. She had protected him, rather, I might say, from that uh, eccentric dad of theirs from time to time. And he, she had done such a good job that he had told her that, that when I get to be a man, your happiness will, will be everything to me. You know, th this will mean everything to me. Uh, I'll never forget what you've done for me as a child, and I'll be there for you when, when you need help. And, you know, she just turned it on, man. She prayed, she pledged, she wept. She pulled out every trick she had, and she won. At the end of the day, she talked him into staying out of the war. But I think it was a bad mistake in a way because both, you know, his political feelings and his in personal instincts uh, were Southern. And, you know, it would have been more proper maybe for him to go into the Confederate Army. And by 1863, he'd be filling a cavalryman's grave, you know, at Brandy Station or something like that. I think that was the, the natural course. But, you know, that didn't happen. And as his friends and classmates filled out the Confederate Army in Virginia, he gave his Confederate flag, this is John Wilkes Booth's personal Confederate flag from 1861. It's in the collection of the American Civil War Museum. He gave it to a friend up in the Maryland countryside there, and he went into acting. This is the uh, Art Street Theater in Philadelphia. And um, uh, Booth won a number of venues in the North where Booth acted. I might say Booth never acted on a Confederate stage. He acted in the South, but only in areas like New Orleans that had been conquered by the North. So he did act in the South, but not in any Confederate stage, only in uh, occupied cities like New Orleans or St. Louis or in northern cities like, um, like Boston, Chicago, New York, and places like that. Uh, and he was very good. He was a natural actor. I mean, he was, he, in some ways, he had the, the, inner, uh, the inner fire for it. You know, he had the love of applause. Uh, he was very ambitious, very determined. Uh, for most of his life through the years, war, war years, he was really focused on being a fine actor as best as he could be. Very, very uh, ambitious. Uh, I remember some of you may remember the Redskins had a great, years and years ago in their glory days, the Redskins had a great offensive lineman named Joe Jacoby. And Joe was famous for saying, to win the Super Bowl, I would run over my own mother. His teammate, Matt Mellon, said, I know that sounds strange, but I know how he feels. Matt said, to win the Super Bowl, I would run over Joe's mother also. <laughs> so I'm just saying John had that type of focus, right, and determination. I love this photograph from the 1840s. Not only is it early, but it's, um, it's the um, ancestor of a famous family of actors. This is Louisa Lane Drew, who ran the Arch Street Theater. She is the grandmother of John Lionel and Ethel Barrymore, therefore the direct descendant of Drew Barrymore, the actress. So there's an acting family even more extensive than the Booths, if you think about it, right? 
she brought him to the arts to act. Uh, he wasn't her type of actor, and he had come on too far too fast. He became a star in a matter of months, just months. Now, he had, a, he had a real serious tutelage here in Richmond as a junior actor, but, you know, once he headed for stardom, right, he just soared. And, you know, veteran actresses like Louisa Lane Drew thought he had come too far too fast. I mean, she brought him in because he sold tickets, but nevertheless, uh, she didn't think much about that. And one funny thing was she tried to rattle him. If she didn't like you, she could be, she had a terribly, terrifying sense of humor. And one thing she would do, she would pretend to look to him for advice. Now, he's only 23 years old, right, and just getting started, and he's uh, uh, reluctant to give advice to a grand lady of the theater, obviously, right, but she would, you know, embarrass him by doing stuff like that. Here's a stage set from 63. This, this could be Booth. Uh, this is a rehearsal, obviously. Notice the gas footlights at the front. They would run across here on our stage, and you had to be careful, right? You had to know where you were. Uh, or you could get too close to those. And in fact, here in Richmond, in December of 1858, a young actress named Kate Fisher wandered too close to one. Her dress caught on fire, right in, in the Richmond Theater. The audience members were, saw it, but they, they were too far to help her. So they cried to the actors on stage, you know, help, help, you know, as her dress, she had a, a large, loose-fitting merino dress on. It began to just flame up right on her. And uh, the newspaper said that John Wilkes Booth ran across, put the fire out with his own hands, and saved her life. There are two or three times during the war when he does stuff like that, during the war years, or just before, when he actually saves people from accidents of different kinds. One of the popular plays he did was The Apostate. Uh, this is a prompt book. If we could open this thing up, it would have names of the characters, their lines, and every actor would have one of these, right, so you could do your rehearsals. Uh, and then the apostate uh, would be featured uh, with playbills like this. Here's Booth in 64, less than a year before the assassination of Lincoln, playing the character of Pescara. This was, this was the bloodiest guy on the Civil War states. This was an absolute villain. Uh, I mean, he was one of the scariest of the scariest characters that you could see. And Booth uh, liked to play that because he could always get a good reaction from the audience. And I might say, his makeup, he always went for realism, and his makeup was so realistic that at one point when he was playing this, he had to stop and reassure the actress he was playing with that it's just me. He, he was playing with someone, uh, her name was uh, uh, Kate F uh, Catherine Fisher, I think the name was. No, I'm Catherine something or other. And, and he just so, you know, he had to stop. He said, Catherine, Catherine, calm down. It's just Johnny, you know. I got this terrible makeup on, but it's just Johnny. Don't, don't get upset. Richard III, here the, um, Richard being haunted by the ghost of the two young princes. Another very fun and popular play of his. And uh, I think front to back, it's pretty clear that Booth was an exceptional actor. Uh, one of the best of the Civil War stage. He had the money to prove it. He was making twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a year when he was acting hard, and that's a lot of Civil War money if you think about it, twenty-five dollars to thirty a year. And then the other thing was he, he could play great range. He could play a villain like Biscara or Richard, then the next night turn around and play uh, Romeo or play uh, the sculptor Phidias in a, the play called The Marble Heart. Now there, you, you're, you're kind of open and sincere um, you, you can't be the worst of the worst and the nicest of the nice back to back unless you've got great range. In fact, Edmund Forrest, one great actor, said, the, the, what is the definition of a great actor? He said, an actor 
is great in the Civil War times if he could play three roles better than, lead major roles better than anybody else in the country. You, you can play one role, get lucky, and that's all you need to play for the rest of your life. Just the way that Sylvester Stallone fit into that Rocky character, right? I, never, I mean, it was perfect uh, case of actor and role, and you never need to play another thing. You're it, that's you. you know, but Booth could show a really great range from good to bad and meets all the definitions, I think. And as you can see from this photograph, there are only two prints of this particular photograph. This is from the Harvard Theater Collection. He was a very, very a handsome uh, guy, uh, uh, very athletic, uh, had a great smile, uh, just uh, was very engaging to people. Uh, he had a number of very passionate affairs. I go into some of these in the book. Uh, this is Maggie Mitchell, who was very popular in Richmond, I might say. Uh, she was a tiny little thing. I'm not sure she would come up to this, this, this height here. But she was a very talented actor, dancer, singer, and so energetic, so vital. When she died, uh, the New York Times said that uh, when Maggie died, this is exactly from the New York Times. So when Maggie died, uh, so uh, when Maggie was still in her 20s when she died at the age of 81 uh, in whatever, whatever, right? And I thought that's a very nice way to put that, right? But she and Booth, uh, she and Booth were very, very uh, thick. Uh, and had, had an affair during the Civil War years. I told one of my students, you know, I'm gonna, I'd like to meet Maggie when I go to heaven. One of my students said, you, you think you're going to heaven? <laughs> uh, another thing I bring out a little bit in the book, which I enjoy, is, is spiritualism and the role of seances and spiritualists in the Civil War. Booth is very attached to these two uh, young men, the Davenport brothers. Um, uh, Booth went to a number of seances, and as a matter of fact, one of the things I develop in the book is the Booths and the Lincolns had a medium in common. Uh, that's never been brought out before, and I, I had a lot of fun with that. But I'm, you know, I'm sure none of this would be remembered today if it were for something else. And of course, that is Ab Abraham Lincoln and Booth's desperate, increasingly desperate preoccupation with Abraham Lincoln. It's interesting to note about this that when Lincoln was elected in 1860, Booth sat down and he wrote a long, long, long political diatribe. Um, it's the longest thing he ever wrote. Abraham Lincoln's name is not even mentioned in it. Lincoln had become, uh, been elected president. He was the most discussed man in the United States. And yet, uh, you know, and yet Booth had not focused on him. But uh, as time went on, of course, Booth began to think more and more about Lincoln began to see the revolutionary changes that Lincoln was making to America. It's interesting. Booth was 26 when he shot Lincoln, 26. For the, Abraham Lincoln was the first president elected to two terms during Booth's whole 26-year lifetime. We were just in a run of one-term presidents. And when Lincoln was elected a second time, it was easy for those who hated, hated Lincoln Wright to think that Lincoln wants more than a second term. Remember, there's no term limits, right, in the 19th century, that there's no end to what Lincoln could have if he wanted it. And the stuff Lincoln did, the draft, emancipation, the income tax, military supervision of voting, trade and travel restrictions, suppression of, of this, that, and the other, suspension of habeas corpus. I mean, those things were like breathtaking. I mean, I think even Lincoln would have been stunned that he wound up doing some of those things 10 years earlier but he had found it necessary at that point to do it to win the war, and he did it. And Booth, of course, just began to focus on him. And I, I, I interpret this this way. Asia, the sister, remember, wrote the secret memoir. She said that when Booth had a problem, like a spelling problem as a child, 
he would imagine the spelling problem as, as an enemy soldier. He would, as she, she used the word individualize, he would individualize that problem like a soldier, then attack it uh, as an uh, enemy as a soldier would do. And uh, as Booth said, you know, by, by making my problems personal, you know, I can always conquer them. And I think to some extent, Booth just personalized Lincoln into all of the issues and controversies of the war. <clears throat> I, I, was, I was telling my friends today that one of the problems with working in the 19th century is you don't really get to interview anybody because it's so long ago. I did run down a few grandchildren. I, I ran down the grandchildren of this journalist. This is George Alfred Townsend, who did a lot of writing in the post-war years, seeking out, interviewing people who knew Booth, knew the conspirators, and wrote like 40 years of uh, newspaper articles. He wrote books and novels about the assassination. And you know, he made his mistakes, but he uh, gives us a lot of information that can supplement uh, some of the things we find in the federal records. Here's a wonderful thing from the assassination. Look at this, would you? This is a Lincoln Assassination Memorial fan made in Cuba for the Latin American and the European markets. And it has scenes of the assassination out uh, on the fan tips. I'm going to show you several of those in just a second. But I want to say that this also has something else going for it that you don't know unless you've studied it. I think there are only three or four of these in existence. There's a four-inch dagger concealed in this thing. So when you send your daughter out on a date, <laughs> if you're not sure about the young man, you feel she might need a little pushback, right? Just give her this fan. It's got a four-inch knife hidden in it, uh, just in case. He's a, a man but not a gentleman. Here's one of the scenes on the fan. Here's Siwi Booth and his uh, uh, co-conspirators plotting initially to abduct Lincoln. I think most of us know Booth originally wanted to abduct Lincoln uh, and spent uh, months trying to do that. He had a number of people who were perfectly willing to help him. This photo's never been published. This is James Gordon of Mississippi, who was a Confederate uh, soldier living in Canada late in the war. I did interview James Gordon's grandson uh, and had a lot of fun with that. They wanted to abduct Lincoln, bring him to Richmond. Uh, and once he was here, right, they could turn him over to the Confederate government. And that might force the North to exchange prisoners. That was the idea. They could force the North to exchange prisoners. Now, Lincoln, of course, was much more accessible than a president would be today. Obviously, I mean, I, I never read that he went shopping in stores of Washington, but I do know that he, you know, uh, took carriage rides, uh, visited people's homes, went to hospitals, went to a soldier's retreat, you know, where he spent the time uh, during the uh, good weather months. Uh, so, you know, Lincoln was around. You might be able to get him, particularly if you had assistance of daring people like this. This is Thomas Harbin of Lower Maryland, who was a Confederate agent, a daring river crosser down in the neighborhood of, uh, of where the Rappahannock and the Potomac are, down in the uh, Fredericksburg neighborhood. He was going to help Booth uh, get Lincoln to Richmond. And uh, twice, uh, Booth and his gang laid out for uh, Lincoln. Uh, once they were totally ready to go, once they were partially ready to go, once in January, once in March, but were disappointed both times because Lincoln had changes of plans. So at some point, you know, once Richmond had surrendered, the Confederate Army of Virginia surrendered. Even if you capture Lincoln, where are you going to bring him? There's no Richmond, no Confederate government to present him to at this point. So the hardcore uh, began to deliberate the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. 
uh, and that actually happened at Ford's Theater. Now, notice, of course, that Booth has let Lincoln come to him. Booth has let Lincoln come to the place that he worked, the theater. Booth was not in the play that night. He wasn't in the cast uh, and wasn't a Ford employee. Remember, he was a star. He traveled from theater to theater to theater. But the Ford family were Baltimoreans, just like John Wilkes Booth was, and Booth was so well identified with Ford's theater that uh, he got his mail delivered at Ford's theater. Not at a hotel, not at a home in Washington, but right at Ford's theater itself. Uh, so he had total access and entree to the theater. He could come, the front, the back, side door, come and go anytime he wanted to. And on the night of the assassination, you know, he came uh, to the theater about 10 minutes past 10 o'clock. It was Friday, Good Friday. And I think because Good Friday, the place wasn't packed. It was, there were a lot of people there, but there could have been more. But there was a group of people who would not go to the theater on Good Friday. There were some who wouldn't go under any circumstances, some who wouldn't go on Good Friday in particular. So it was a nice crowd there, but not stuffed. Uh, Booth came up the balcony. So what it is is like, if you've been to Ford's Theater, and I know many of you know what it looks like, right? You have the uh, set of seats here, then a tier up there called the dress. This is the orchestra seats. The dress circle goes up around here. Booth went up a set of stairs, walked around the dress circle, came to a door that would lead you to the president's box here. Uh, there, the door was attended by Charles Forbes, who was a White House valet. He's not armed. Well, he's, he is armed. He's armed with good intentions. That's what he's armed with. He has no weapon. He's not a security guard. He's not there to gate the door or block anybody out. Um, it was well known that Lincoln liked actors, uh, that actors would visit the White House, would visit Lincoln in his box. Lincoln didn't like to go backstage. Lincoln said, if you go backstage, it kind of spoils the illusion, and I don't, wanna, I don't want that spoil. I want to stay out front. So actors would come out and visit him. They would come to the box. That night, in fact, April 14th, one or two people had already been admitted to the box, people with telegrams, messages for the president, that type of thing. So Charles Forbes knew who Booth was, of course, just kind of waved him, all right, go on in, went in. And when Booth went in, he didn't go directly into the box. He went into, imagine an antechamber, about six feet long, four feet wide. Uh, it just led you to uh, two little doors that opened onto this thing. Um, neither doors had working locks. One door was actually ajar. The other had a small hole in it so you could look in and see who was in there. And who was in there, of course, was President Lincoln and Mrs. Lincoln, a young army officer named Henry Rathbone, who incidentally was wearing civilian clothes, so this is not one of many inaccurate things about this fan depiction. And Rathbone's fiance, Clara Harris, were in the box. Now, once Booth got to the antechamber door and looked in to see Lincoln, Lincoln was sitting back. In fact, Lincoln was the closest one to the door, almost close enough for Booth to reach out and touch. And at a certain point in the play, now we see the importance of Booth starring in Our American Cousin here in Richmond. He had played that for almost two weeks here in the city, knew the play, which was being performed all over the country in a variety of theaters, knew exactly uh, the moment he wanted to come out onto the stage. Uh, he, he waited till there was one character on stage, not a bunch of people, just one character. When it was a front set, in other words, almost this close, the stage was no deeper than from here to where the screen is. There was almost no encumbering furniture on the stage, so there'd be one person practically standing alone. Booth would have nothing to uh, bother him once he committed the crime and jumped to the, to the stage floor. He walked right behind Lincoln from a matter of just maybe two or three inches, shot him right behind the left ear. Lincoln didn't say a word. He just kind of slumped over like he was asleep. He didn't fall out of the chair, just kind of slumped forward. 
Booth pushed forward between Lincoln and Mrs. Lincoln, knocking Mrs. Lincoln's shawl to the floor, went to the front of the box, was starting over the, the front of the box to leap down onto the stage, at which point Major Rathbone realizes now what's happening. He comes up and he grabs Booth from behind, pulls Booth straight back from the rail. Um, and Rathbone was a little bit taller than Booth uh, and a combat soldier and a brave enough guy, but Booth was much stronger and, of course, in a frenzy. Booth, Booth was very, very strong. I'm going to stress that again. Uh, Booth was a gym rat. I mean, he, he looked like somebody who was at the gym every day of the week for a couple of hours. Booth twisted himself around in Rathbone's grass. For the first time, the men were face-to-face, -face, and Rathbone said, this has never been published in any other book. I found a source where Rathbone said, man, when I saw his face, it just like sent a chill through my body. You know, because, I mean, it was like the face of a maniac looking at me. Booth pulled up an arm with a knife, slashed Rathbone straight down from the uh, elbow to the, uh, I'm sorry, from the shoulder to the elbow. Rathbone fell away. Booth, Booth went back to the front of the box and started kind of a half jump, half drop. Now, this is a fairly considerable a leap, but Booth had done similar things. This is, uh, we have to think back, because the stage setup is not like it is here, right? Uh, we have the audience, we have an orchestra between the audience and the stage, but we have boxes just like in Elizabethan time on the stage. There was a box right where that door is, there was a box above the door, and that's where Lincoln was. So Booth is going to have to jump down onto, not into the audience, but right onto the stage. Uh, at this point, Rathbone reappears, grabs her Booth again, but Booth is pulling away at that point, so Rathbone comes away with a button, that's all he's able to get. Uh, and Booth is able to come off uh, and land down onto the stage. Uh, it's a, a touch under 12 feet. That's a pretty considerable jump. I was present at Ford's Theater when an IMAX was filmed some years ago. We had an actor, a stuntman, do this. Uh, we put gel packs in his boot. We wrapped his ankle really tight, right, uh, so he doesn't kill himself when he jumped. He jumped three times, and, he's, and he later told me, man, I'm glad we're finished with that. You know, because I felt like I was being dropped from a seven-story building. Uh, Twelve feet is nothing to fool around with. Uh, and Booth, being off balance, broke the bone, uh, the smaller bone, in, in his left leg. Uh, the pistol at Ford's Theater that Booth used uh, seldom comes out of uh, its uh, case. When it comes out, you can see a Park Service person brings it out, and a National Park Service armed guard accompanies it to make sure that nobody grabs it. I don't know who they were suspicious of. Uh, well, well, there might have been a few suspicious characters around the, that day. But it was uh, interesting, and I got to say a little, you know, electric to hold the thing, even with gloves on. It's a touch under six inches long. It only weighs eight ounces. But of course, it's a one and done, right? As they say, one and done. One shot, you don't have time to reload. There are no oh, multiple shots in this thing. So it's a one and done, and after he shot uh, Lincoln with it, he just dropped it on the floor of the box and, and took off. Uh, but now he's broken his leg, of course, and he's going to have some serious trouble getting away from the crime scene. This is a, a kind of a fanciful depiction of the assassination. First of all, it has Lincoln on the ground stage floor box when he was actually on the one above. Booth has no mustache, and you think Booth is Byron almost with that, that look. And, giving a very uh, heroic uh, attitude, and people in the um, audience are reacting in, in shock and, and outrage. 
when in fact nobody in the audience really knew what was happening. That was the point, I believe. Um, Booth was an actor. It wasn't surprising to see him on stage. Everyone thought, this, oh, they, they've done something with the play here, right? This is some innovation in the play. When he hit the stage, everybody, somebody there said it was so quiet you could have heard anyone uh, whisper uh, or handkerchief rustle. So Booth was, although he was badly injured, he was able to get to his feet uh, because, again, he's broken the small bone. If he had broken the big bone in his leg, you know, he would have been effectively immobilized. By breaking the small bone, you know, he, he's, he's got a serious injury, but with his adrenaline right, he was able to get up and get moving, and that's exactly what he did. Now, he was on the run for uh, 11 days. Um, here we see him uh, in another image from the fan. He was fortunate to have a couple of people help him uh, very seriously. This is David Harrell, uh, a young Washingtonian who was with Booth for the entire escape, all, 11, all 12 days. Harrell was captured and executed. Uh, I might say that his lawyer in his defense um, painted a picture of a young man who was manipulated by the magnetic and wily Booth. You remember the, the Boston Marathon bomber? You remember they were trying to get him off by saying his brother made him do it? And, and it was a similar defense, but I, ne I never felt that was true because Harrell went to Georgetown. Um, some, one of the detectives who chased him said he was, he was naturally quick and smart and thinking about things. Um, so maybe the uh, dumb guy uh, approach was just a legal strategy that's impacted our understanding of, of what he really was as a person. Now, I'm not saying he's a genius. No, by any means, David Harrell's no genius. I remember, since I mentioned Joe Jacoby, some of you may also remember Joe Theismann, who was a, a famous Redskin quarterback in the day. Theismann said famously one time that there are very few real geniuses out there. Theismann said a genius, Theismann said, is someone like Norman Einstein. Someone like that. <laughs> Am I saying he's a Norman Einstein? No, no, I, I, I'm not saying that he's a Norman Einstein, but you know, he was a competent, intelligent, he helped Booth keep moving south. Uh, they were able to get out of Maryland, cross the river, get down on the Rappahannock below Fredericksburg. Uh, they were able to cross the river with the help of this fellow, Another photograph I don't remember seeing published, although I did stick it in the book, this is Thomas A. Jones, who lived just on the Maryland side of the Potomac River near the 301 Bridge, if any of you know down where that area is in Virginia. Um, he was a very Confederate fellow. Early in the war, he had been arrested for helping people go back and forth from Richmond to Baltimore. And while he was in prison, Northern soldiers moved into his house, shoved his wife and family back in a little room. Uh, they took and acted as they wanted, and um, his wife was pregnant and she died. And when he found all this out when he got out of prison, and it just, that just changed him. I mean, it turned like a, a foe into a hated enemy, right? He just, he just hated uh, every person from the North for what happened to his family. And he was willing to help Booth. And uh, he was the one that got Booth across the Potomac River as well as fed and, and hid him for four nights. But in time, Booth was tracked down. Here we see uh, the death scene from the fan. And the... Um, Bullet was fired before Booth had time to do any shooting. It was fired by this character named Thomas Corbett, popularly Boston Corbett, who was a, an, uh, an English immigrant to the United States, a hat maker. Um, Corbett was a religious eccentric. He was admired by his fellow soldiers for his bravery and, and military virtues and courage, uh, although they kind of laughed at him right because of his excessive religious religiosity. But um, 
I, I think that Corbett had in his mind to shoot Booth from the get-go. Uh, in fact, while Booth was surrounded in a barn and wouldn't come out, Harold came out, Booth wouldn't come out. Uh, Corbett asked several times to be allowed to go into the barn and take Booth out himself. So I think it's revealing that the person who finally shot Booth was somebody who had wanted to go in there by himself and deal with the Booth issue. And I, I realize why as I researched the character. Uh, very, very early in the war, say the first week of the Civil War, the, um, the, the capital, Washington, was threatened seriously. And Lincoln put out the word for northern militia companies to come down. And one group that came down were New York City militiamen. And he was in the New York militiamen, so he came down. This is in April of, of 61 to save the capital. And Lincoln was so grateful when they arrived that he, he went by, and with tears in his eyes, Lincoln shook every man's hand. And he shook Corbett's hand at the beginning of the war. So Corbett prayed, now, here at the end of the war, let my hand, the hand that shook Lincoln's hand, let that be the hand that avenges Lincoln. So I think he, he intended to shoot Booth from the get-go, and he finally found the opportunity. Once the fire began to build up and Booth is going to be forced to come out and confront the soldiers, uh, Booth took a halting step toward the door, but before any shots were fired by Booth, you know, he was shot through the neck by Boston Corbett, and um, he, he lingered for several hours, dying very, very painfully. And if there were any soldiers there who wanted revenge, yeah, they got it that day. One of the people present said, I, I don't know, I saw any guy in the Civil War die harder than John Wilkes Booth did. The government kept Booth's body for um, four years, then turned it over to the family. And he is buried properly with his uh, siblings and his parents here in Greenmount Cemetery. This is the Booth Monument in Greenmount. I might say about this, no question that Booth is in there. Uh, that's actually been litigated, believe it or not. In 1995, a television show wanted to dig up his body and do some uh, examinations of it. And Greenmount Cemetery said, I don't think that's going to be happening. That's absurd. It's, it's ahistorical, right? It's mischievous. It's, you know, Booth this week, Bigfoot next week. I mean, this isn't serious, and we're not going to let you desecrate a body, you know, that way. So the TV people took them to court, and a four-day trial was held in Baltimore City Court over whether Booth could be exhumed. The cemetery, this is Greenmont Cemetery in Baltimore, subpoenaed me. I got a subpoena from the cemetery <laughs> to come to the trial and testify. But I would have gone without the subpoena. I mean, because, you know, that was, that was an amazing uh, week, as you could guess. You know, we had historians and forensic people and folklorists and actors. And, you know, we had a Lincoln lookalike there and an expert on mummification. I mean, every nut... <laughs> Yeah, every nut in the United States was at that trial, right? Uh, and the court upheld the cemetery, agreeing Booth had been properly identified and uh, everything was fine. So he was uh, left to rest where, uh, where his mom put him that hot summer day in 1869. And he's right there. Now, uh, the other stones around the uh, monument are for, his, for Asia, the loving sister, for Joe, the wayward brother, uh, for his parents, uh, John is buried here, but there's no marker for him. There wasn't anything that the government demanded. Uh, you might think it was, because you remember a, a grave with no marker might indicate um, a life unworthy of commemorating, right? Unworthy of remembering, a, a life of disgrace or shame. But no, it was just due to the sensibility of his family. They, they didn't want a marker there. But he is right at that spot. It's well documented. Uh, when, when we go there, and if you have a chance to go to Greenmount, it's, it's an amazing place, you know, it's kind of like Hollywood is down here, right? 
Uh, I often see Lincoln pennies around, Lincoln pennies around on the Booth grave there. And the story is they're put there to, to hold Booth in the ground. <laughs> now, I noticed in recent years, people have been collecting those pennies, driving them to Washington, D.C., putting them in the alley behind Ford's Theater with Lincoln face down in the alley behind Ford's Theater to hold Lincoln into the ground at Ford's Theater. So that Civil War is, is still going on, I guess. This is the Angel of Resurrection. It's over a receiving vault where Booth's body stayed for some months before the summer weather came along and the burial of 69 could take place. Um, I always close out with this slide. It's, it's hard to know how to end a talk on John Wilkes Booth. There's no happy ending to it, as you could guess, but uh, it's thought, thought to have. Um, obviously, you know, he was somebody very much loved by his family, and, and, and he loved them. He had many admirers and devoted friends. He brought uh, a lot of entertainment, fun, and thrills to thousands of people as an actor, but he brought pain, confusion, and anger to millions, right, as an assassin. So, you know, I'm, I'm just content to leave him to the angels and to the judgment of time because uh, I'm sure the fullness of time will give him um, his due as it does to each and to every one of us. Thank you very much for your kind attention. I'd be glad to take a few questions. Booth clearly was a uh, talented and disturbed uh, individual. You mentioned that he was the engine that drove the conspiracy. I'm curious uh, as to why Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who was clearly the number two guy in the Union government, was not embroiled in the conspiracy or not a part of it. Well, I think that uh, most of the recent work uh, not, not so recent work shows that Lincoln and Stanton did not get along at the beginning of the war, but they grew very, very close as the war went on. Doris Kearns Goodwin arrived to this conclusion. I didn't see anything that made me think Stanton uh, w was, um, had evil designs toward Lincoln. And I think we also have to remember, Abraham Lincoln has some brains. Uh, he would know if he was dealing daily with somebody who was a threat to him. So uh, I, I, I don't see, if, if the question was, was Stan in any way involved in this, I just didn't see it in my work. Well, in sort of, the question really is, why was Stanton not a target? Oh, um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't think Booth had enough people to target everybody he wanted. Plus, we, we might remember that Stanton wasn't really um, in the line of secession like Seward was and like the vice president were. So those were the ones to go to. And in a way, yes, Booth is crazy. Um, in a way, he's not crazy in a way he is. And this is relevant to what you're saying. And he's not crazy in the sense that if you, and I were at the, if you and I went to the mall for lunch and we're walking down to the restaurant and you would say to me, hey, look over there, look, look at that guy, look at that guy. We would both know there's something wrong there. Um, but he, 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 he sees and does things that a million other people wouldn't do. I mean, I'm surprised, really, that Lincoln lived as long as he did, given the passions of the war. If 700,000 other people die, I'm surprised he wasn't among that number at some point early in the war, but, but he wasn't. Something restrained people. 
you know, whether it was morality, prudence, fear, whatever it was, something held them back. But at the same time, back to your question and to some, to end that point, um, he had a conspiracy. You know, he had a friend, if, if we had more time in the evening, I'd love to talk to you about it. He had a friend who attacked the Secretary of State. He had another friend who was supposed to attack the Vice President. So he actually had a, a real conspiracy of similarly minded people who were going out, you know, to cut the head of the government off if they could do it. Yes, sir? I have two questions for you. Is that as far as I know, is that Lincoln didn't make the decision to attend Ford's Theater until late in the afternoon. Did Booth find out, you know, sometime in that period of time to come to the theater? Yeah. And the second question is, is that uh, did he ever, uh, did Lincoln ever attend a performance where Booth was the actor? Thank you. Uh, when did Booth find out that Lincoln would be there? I would say around 1230 that afternoon. Uh, both theaters had tried to get Lincoln to come. There were two major theaters, one Grover's now National Theater and Ford's Theater. Uh, and it's quite possible Lincoln could have gone to Grover's and then it would be Grover's Theater we're talking about here. But he went to Ford's. His son went to Grover's. Uh, so there was, he, like, you, like you implied, right? He didn't really want to go, but you know, the word was out he was coming. People wanted to see General Grant. People saw Lincoln fairly often. Grant was the one they never saw being at the front. Yes, Lincoln did see John Wilkes Booth perform on at least one occasion, I think on multiple occasions. He saw him perform um, a play that I mentioned during my lecture, The Marble Heart, where Booth played a young sculptor. Uh, and um, Booth, Booth knew Lincoln, of course, and Lincoln knew exactly who Booth was. They never talked, they never spoke, but when they would pass on the street, Lincoln would smile and nod at Booth. So it's interesting that Lincoln knew exactly who Booth was. Now, Tad Lincoln, Lincoln's young son, went to see Booth perform The Marble Heart. And this is an interesting story, isn't it? That Tad was really excited. That, the Marble Heart is a, it's a kid's play in a way. The acting is very emotional. You know, there's a spooky dark stage. You're talking to ghostly voices. You're running around, you fall dead, you jump up, you throw your clothes on the floor. You know, you tear things and turn over a desk. I mean, every kid would just sit there, you know, uh, enjoying, uh, enjoying that play wonderfully. And Tad wanted to go back and meet John Mooks Booth, so the stage manager took Tad and his young companion back. They met Booth in Booth's dressing room. This is obviously before the assassination, right? Uh, they met Booth in his dressing room. Booth smiled, very sweet to them, gave them flowers. People had handed Booth some flowers over the footlights, and um, Booth gave some to Tad and his friend, according to the friend who left this account years later. So it, it's, it's amazing, right, that Booth and Lincoln really knew each other. That's quite different, isn't it, from modern assassinations where these, these people, the president obviously never heard of any of these people before, and we would have never heard of them either. When Booth, I think it's what attracted to me as a subject, him as a subject, Booth was somebody with something to lose, not a born loser. I mean, he, he was somebody before the assassination. Yes, sir. Was his, uh, was the Booth family threatened publicly after the assassination, and if so, for how long? His, his oldest brother, Junius, the first brother uh, who I showed in the slide, was acting in Cincinnati. Uh, yes, he had to hide out for several days, then get slipped to Philadelphia. He found some safety by being arrested by the government and brought to Washington and held for six or eight weeks for questioning. 
His brother Edwin was acting in Boston. Um, he was, uh, he felt it inadvisable to go out, but Boston was a city that Edwin had a lot of connections in, and Edwin had been avowedly unionist. Everybody knew that Edwin was more political than, John, than Junius was, so uh, Edwin came to Washington, but he wasn't needed here and was sent away. Um, so uh, Clark, the brother-in-law, Asia's husband, he was arrested and in prison for a while. Uh, so yes, there was some trouble there, but after a couple of weeks, I think they were safe enough. There is a, an odd thing about it, isn't it, though, that this family has to make a living in public. I mean, it's not like they run a store that they can shut for six months and then if you don't like the booths, you don't go by. They've got to get out and act, right? They've got to get up in front of strangers, hundreds of strangers every day and make a living in public. So, you know, although at some point they, they withdrew from the stage, they all had to come back and they were worried how the public would receive them. But, um, you know, the public, there was a lot of favorable press to the family, uh, not John, of course, but to everyone else. And, uh, the public was sane enough to realize they are, they are not maybe their brother's keeper. I recently received a uh, letter, um, not through the mail, but through purchase, uh, from 1862, in which a lady from Port Royal mentions Dr. Charles Urquhart mm -hmm. coming out to see the children. Uh, this was the same doctor who treated Booth at the barn. Was Dr. Urquhart the best or just handy? Yes, I'm glad you identified him, and I'm proud you got that letter. There's surprisingly little known about him. Uh, I don't think there's a known photograph. This is the doctor who was brought by the soldiers to uh, the Garrett farm after Booth had been shot, see if there was anything they could do to save Booth's life. There's very little known about him. My guess is he just lived closest to the farm, about four miles or so from where Booth was shot. And of course, as you may know, right, once he got to the farm, he, just a quick exam showed him that Booth was gonna die. Uh, and, and indeed, that, that did happen. Again, thank you so much for your kind attendance and attention.